We are up to mitzvah number 88, and today we're going to do four interrelated mitzvahs, 88, and then 488, 489, and 490. And these four mitzvahs relate to the triannual pilgrimages and celebrations in the temple. We're told that there are three festivals a year, Pesach, of course, Passover, Sukkot, which comes five days after Yom Kippur, and, of course, Shavuos, the festival that marks the day that we got the Torah. These are the three festivals, the Shalash Regalim, and on these three days, we are required to coalesce in the temple in Jerusalem, and there are four distinct mitzvot that relate to what we're supposed to do once we are there. So we have mitzvah number 88, and that is to celebrate on the festivals in Jerusalem. And then we have Mitzvah 488, and that is to be joyous on the festivals. And then we have 489, which is to appear in the temple on the festivals. And finally, 490, to not come empty-handed. Now, these three mitzvos we're told, are really related to three different sacrifices. We have the idea of a chadiga. Chadidah means a celebration. There's a celebration offering that we're required to bring, and that is Mitzvah number 88. And then there's the Shalmei Simcha, which is the joyous offering, which is 488. And finally, there's the Olas Re'iya, the appearance elevation sacrifice, and that is 489 and 490. We have won the positive mitzvah to, yes, indeed, bring the Olas Re'iya, the appearance elevation offering, on the festivals, and finally, we have the negative mitzvah, the prohibition, the transgression, to not come empty-handed, to not bring, to not come without this sacrifice. So that's the idea. Three times a year, all the Jews from all over the world make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they ascend to Temple Mount, and they participate in the festivals, in the festivities, in the celebrations, and Part of that is these three categories of sacrifices that everyone's required to bring. Number one, the re'iyah, which means the appearance. You're appearing and you're showing up and you bring a sacrifice. That can be even a small sacrifice like a bird. Then there's the chadiga, which is the celebration sacrifice, which is basically going to be your food for the festivities. And then there's also the shalmei simcha, which is the joyous celebration. Now, this is an interesting idea. It's almost like the highlights of the year. In America, we have election season, and we have Thanksgiving, and then there's like the Super Bowl, and there's like these days in the year that everyone looks forward to, or at least some people do. And in the Jewish life, we have these three anchors of the year, the three festivals, and they are marked by the whole nation arriving to Jerusalem, coalescing, uniting in Jerusalem, and having an experience unlike any other that invigorates the spirit and the soul for the entire year. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to guide us through the mitzvahs, he's going to give us some of the reasons behind this, and then we're going to dig into the laws, and then we're going to talk more about these days and what they represent and how they were experienced. So he tells us, that there's a mitzvah to celebrate on the festivals. And that means to ascend, aliyah, to ascend Laregel for the festival three times a year. And that is on Pesach, on Shavuos, and on Sokos. And when we come, we don't come empty-handed. 
we're not those kinds of guests that shows up without a gift. We come with something to offer to God. Now, the Sefer Chinuch cautions us to not make the mistake of thinking that God needs our sacrifices. God needs nothing. God owns everything. He doesn't need not your mitzvahs, not your prayer, not your Torah, and definitely not your sacrifices. Very important point that the Sefer Chinuch cautions us again and again over the course of his book. Of course, the Almighty doesn't need it. And everything that we do, all of our prayer, all of our mitzvahs, all of our Torah, all of our sacrifices is not for God's sake, it is for our sake. God doesn't need our sacrifices, but pretending that we're giving something to God fosters a relationship between us and God, and it actually helps and benefits us. When you bring a sacrifice, you're, of course, not giving something to God, but you are benefiting yourself by creating a relationship between you and your creator. And then he adds that the objective of creation, and this is a theme that he revisits very often in his book, the objective of creation, why did God create the entire world and you? Why? Because the Almighty wants to give. There was one thing that the Almighty could not do before creation, that is to give. If there's no recipient, God cannot give. And therefore, the objective of all of creation is for God to give goodness, to bestow goodness onto others. And one of the ways that we do that is with this mitzvah. Really, every mitzvah is a way for us to make ourselves a receptacle, a vessel of divine goodness. And the best place in the world where the goodness flows in an unimpeded fashion, well, that's Temple Mount. That's the place where the pipelines connecting heaven and earth, that's where they're located. And all the blessing in the world comes via these spiritual pipelines connecting heaven and earth, which is at Temple Mount. The heavenly temple and the earthly temple are mirror images of each other, and that's where the blessing descends from heaven, and from there it spreads throughout the whole world. As an analogy, Rashi tells us in the beginning of Parshish Vayetze that when you pray in Houston, Texas, or really anywhere, if you're on Jupiter, or on the moon, or in the ISS, or in North Dakota, you pray, your prayer has to travel to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it ascends those aforementioned pipelines, and it goes to heaven. Which is why there's such an emphasis on prayer in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. Abraham prayed there. Isaac prayed there. Jacob, of course, prayed there as well. Why? Because that is the place where prayer is most direct. It doesn't need to travel. If I pray from Houston, my prayer has to travel all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to the old city of Jerusalem, all the way to Temple Mount, and only then can it ascend to heaven. What happens to my prayer along the way? All these forces are trying to take nibbles at it, and the prayer is going to be 
affected by all the forces that it's going to encounter on its trip across the pond, across Europe, through the Mediterranean, to Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, you pray in Jerusalem, there's nothing stopping it, and goes straight to heaven right away. So this is a very important place. This is a very important location because this is where the intensity of the unity of heaven and earth is at its strongest. And therefore, if you want to be a recipient of divine goodness, where's the best place to go? Go to Jerusalem. And what's the best place, what's the best thing to do once you're there? Is offer a sacrifice. What happens when you offer a sacrifice? You're taking something from below and offering it above. You're creating a union, a link between heaven and earth, and that corresponds with heaven bestowing goodness back towards you in a reciprocal fashion. And therefore, we have this important day, a day where good things happened, a day that is auspicious for blessing, and we have this best location. And what do you do on the best day, on the best location? You do the best thing to become a recipient of divine goodness, which is the purpose of creation, which is a very advanced idea. But that is one of the ideas we're told why we bring sacrifices in the temple on the festivals. Now, some of the laws here about the first sacrifice that we're talking about here, and that is the Olas Re'ia, which is an Ola, is an elevation offering. Of course, we're not quite in the book of Leviticus. We're following the mitzvahs in the order in which they appear in the Torah, and we're still in the book of Exodus. Once we get to Leviticus, there will be many, many laws related to sacrifices and other ritual activities that, unfortunately, we cannot quite yet fulfill. But just the basic categories, there are different kinds of sacrifices. And Ola, which is the first sacrifice that is mentioned in the book of Leviticus, and Ola is an elevation offering, meaning that none of that meat is consumed by humans. And the Olas Ria, which is the appearance Ola, that can be of any kind of animal. And you got to travel from your hometown with that animal in tow. You gotta take your, your goat or your sheep or your bird in a little cage and travel to Jerusalem. Or you could take money. Money's also fine. You take your money, you go to Jerusalem, you go to the marketplace, you buy the animal and you bring it to Temple Mount. If you miss the day where you're supposed to be in the sacrifice, there are makeup days for the duration of the festival. And that's the basic idea of mitzvah number 88. And again, these things are all interrelated. If you look at the book of Talmud that is dedicated to the festivities and the celebrations of the festivals, it is called Chagiga, like the word Chag, which means a festival or a holiday. And Chagiga is the celebration and or the offering that is brought on the Chag. So there's a whole book of Talmud dedicated to this subject. And it links these three mitzvahs that are interrelated and that must be done on the festivals. So we have mitzvah number 88, and now we're going to move on to mitzvah number 488, and that is the mitzvah to be joyous on the festival. Vesamachta, you should be sameach, you should be happy and joyous. Bechagecha, on your chag, on your festival. And the basic idea, again, is to offer 
a specific kind of sacrifice, a shlamim sacrifice, not an ola, a shlamim in the temple. Unlike the ola that is completely consumed on the altar, the shlamim, like the word shalom means peace, it's a peaceful sacrifice because everyone gets a little piece of the pie. The Cohen gets some, you get some, the altar gets some, everyone's happy, you have your steak, the Cohen has his steak, and the altar gets its pound of flesh, quite literally, as well. Now, unlike the other mitzvahs that we're talking about today, this mitzvah, to be joyous on your festivals, this is actually a mitzvah that's applicable today. Because the basic idea of this mitzvah is to offer a sacrifice, a joyous sacrifice on the festival. But in absence of the temple, we can still be joyous with other things. So, for example, we're told in the sources that the joy is not limited to the sacrifice, but there was meat and steak and wine and nice clothing, and new clothing, and giving out candies and other delicacies to the children. Moreover, there was, at least on the festival of Sukkis, there was what's called Simchas Beis HaShoeva. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. The celebration of the Beis HaShoeva. Shoeva means to draw, like you draw water from a well. There was an insane party in the temple on the days of circus called Simchas Beis HaShoeva. And again, that's the joy, the Simcha, the joy that we celebrate on these festivals. So even today, where sadly we can't go to the temple and we can't bring sacrifices, nevertheless, there is a mitzvah for us on our festivals to be joyous. And what does that mean? Says the Talmud. Well, for the men, it means meat. And for the women, it means new clothing and jewelry. And for the kids, it means delicacies and candy. And I always joke when I talk about this, is that as much as things have changed, they have remained the same. You know, society has evolved a lot of the last 2,000 years. But again, you do find, again, we're not speaking in absolutes. But generally speaking, if you see people that are really obsessed with their barbecues and they and they're doing the smokers, in all likelihood, we're talking about men. And you know, more women than men are really obsessed with jewelry, and the kids still love candy. So there's a mitzvah today on festivals to celebrate and be joyous and to have the meat and the wine and the nice clothing and the new clothing and the festivities to make sure that everyone is joyous. Now, there's also a mitzvah, which is, again, a a related mitzvah, to make sure that everyone is included. It's appropriate to include on the festivals and the celebration to include the poor people, get them involved. As you know, uh, before the festivals, in every Jewish community, there are fundraisers to raise money for the poor people so they can celebrate the festivals as well to include the converts, people who are more disadvantaged, to include the weak ones, to include the Levites, to include the orphans and the widows. There is a mitzvah to make sure that everyone else is involved in these celebrations.
Now, the Sefer Chinuch, he says something so interesting in this mitzvah, so powerful, so unexpected, I want to share it with you. He says that humans have basic needs. There are basic needs that we have. Maslow's hierarchy. There's basic needs that we have. And included in this basic needs, we of course, we have food and drink and you got to sleep and you got to relax. There is another component on this hierarchy of needs and that is to experience joy. Everyone has to experience joy. It's a basic human need. Humans can't be without joy. But the question is, in which area of your life are you going to experience joy? Today, you know my feelings on this. Today, a lot of people, when their political team scores a victory, they experience tremendous joy. Or their preferred football team, whose players don't hear about him, and are athletes making a fortune of money playing a child's game, when they win, it brings joy to some guy or girl, on his couch, or her couch, just watching. Like, we have weird ways of trying to draw joy. But he tells us that that is a fundamental, basic human need to experience joy. And the Torah is telling us, you need joy. You will find joy. Everyone will find some area of joy because it's a basic human need. But where's the joy going to be found? Let's make the festivals... These oases of joy make it a spiritual joy. And that way you will elevate not just the experience of the festival, but your entire life as a result. So when does the Almighty make us or command us to experience joy? On the most important days of the calendar. On the days that are festivals. On the days that great miracles happened. And great goodness was bestowed upon our people. And when that day becomes a day of joy, everything is elevated. And those experiences that we're trying to remember and inculcate and integrate into ourselves and our children, those experiences become much stickier when they are experienced and retold in a joyous fashion. The things that you learn, things you experience, in a joyous environment, your mind, your heart is more receptive to those things. And therefore, this is going to stick. This is going to endure. It's a very advanced kind of psychological idea here. The setting and the atmosphere in which you experience certain ideas, it really matters on the retention of those ideas and experiences. And therefore, if you want to make Judaism interesting and fun and faith to last and endure... Do it in a joyous fashion and those memories and those experiences and those ideals and priorities and values and those lessons of faith will stick and will be perpetuated from generation to generation. Very advanced idea on the psychology of joy and how it affects the experiences that we're trying to connect to on the festivals. And finally, of Mitzah number 489, and that is to appear. To show up. You have to show up in the temple. Everyone has got to be there three times a year. You got to bring your sacrifices, the Chadidah, the Shlamim, the Shalmi Simcha, and 
the olas re'iya. And if you don't show up and you don't bring your sacrifices, you violate mitzvah number 490, that is to not show up empty-handed. So that's the basic overview of this mitzvah, but I want to dig in a little bit deeper because I found some really fascinating and interesting things about this particular mitzvah. You know, typically we try to cover the mitzvah just a snapshot, just to know what the mitzvah is, but this is such an interesting mitzvah and one that's so distant from us, you know, that you have a pilgrimage, everyone coming together, like, I don't know, burning man on steroids, Woodstock times a thousand. Like, do we know something like this of so many people, millions of people coming together? It's not something that we're even familiar with, and it's, a, it's an experience that we don't have, but it's a, it's a mitzvah. It's, it's, this is obligatory. This is not an optional thing. This is not a once-in-a-lifetime thing like the Muslims have. This is three times a year. Imagine what kind of different life it is when this is things that everyone does. So the Ramban, he asks an interesting question, which I think does broaden the subject for us a little bit. We're told on the festivals to celebrate and to go to Jerusalem and to make a festival out of it and engage in these festivities. But if you look in Scripture, first time this appears, chapter 23 of of Exodus, it links these three festivals, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, to the agricultural cycle. So Pesach, that's springtime, when the fruits begin to ripen. And Shavuos, well, that's the harvest time, when you remove, when you cut out the the bounty, the yield of the year. And Sukkot, it's called the time of the ingathering when the fruits that have been drying out in the heat are brought into the house. So he asked the question, why are these days, these special days in the calendar, why are they linked to the agricultural cycle? So he says that these are very auspicious times. When a person is involved in the miracle of agriculture, where the Almighty is providing food for the entire world in a miraculous fashion. You put an inedible seed in the ground and you just wait and water it. And before you know it, you have food for the whole year for you and your family. An amazing thing. This is a time to not squander. This is a time to thank the Almighty for the rules of heaven and earth that he enacted. And to inspire a feeling and to arouse a feeling of appreciation. So you go to the temple at the time when you are most positioned to have that appreciation and you thank the Almighty and you await further instructions. It's a time where you are most likely to be appreciative and therefore this is a time where that relationship that we talked about is most possible or is most opportune for you to actually have that relationship. But, you know, if it's the dead of the winter and you're miserable and you're cold and you're hungry and you're impatient, maybe that's not the best time to have this, you know, this festivities. But once things are looking up, harvest time, it's time you start to see the fruits of your labor, Pesach time, springtime, you actually bring all the foods in. These are the times to really arouse that feeling of appreciation. Go to the temple and celebrate and seek further guidance. Rav Hirsch has a similar idea. He says that these are the three busiest times 
of the year. These are the times where everyone's working. You know, in, in the winter, really, if you're a farmer, there's not much for you to do. You've done all the plowing and the planting. Now you're just really waiting. So if efficiency was what we were worried about, productivity, then what would we say? Well, maybe when it's a quiet season, that's the time to go to the temple. Why would the Almighty design the calendar at the busiest time of the year? Now's the time to go to the temple. Now's the time to take two weeks off work, drop everything, go to Jerusalem. He says there's an important point here. The objective of life is to become more spiritual, is to focus more on the agenda of the soul. And therefore, the concern is that you're going to be focused so much on your material and physical needs, you're going to be working with all the agricultural cycle, and you're not going to gain that tremendous benefit of kind of weakening your connection to the physical and to the material and losing, so to speak, the the grand overarching point of it all. And therefore, at the time where we're most needed in the field, we stop and say, you know what, now it's time to focus on the spiritual. And that will change your priorities and transform your life. I did see an interesting Ibn Ezra here as well. The verse says, Tachodli, three festivals you should celebrate for me. So the Ibn Ezra says, there are a lot of idolatrous festivals. The ones that you should celebrate are the ones that you celebrate for me, i.e. for God. So I was thinking, you know, today we live in America, most of us, and, you know, our kids, the school's off both on Jewish festivals and on secular or non-Jewish festivals. I always say that the best job in the world is to be a Gentile teacher in a Jewish school because you're off like half the year. If it's Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shavuos, you're off. And any, any one of the other manifold secular festivals or holidays, you're off as well. Is it appropriate for us to celebrate those festivals? So the answer is depends. If it's an idolatrous festival, no. To Chogli, you only celebrate when it is for God. But if it's just a national one, you know, Independence Day or MLK Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, something like that, even Thanksgiving, totally fine. Xmas, Easter, it's not okay to celebrate that. So what happens? Three days or not three days, but three times a year, you go to Jerusalem. Who goes? Well, we're told that every male has to go. The females can go, and they're required to bring the Shalmei Simcha, but they're not required with the same degree of severity as the men. But suppose you knew that every single man who was not crippled or blind, or too young to make the walk or the journey, every healthy man is in one city in Jerusalem for two weeks. If you were an enemy, 
Or if you had some sort of negative plans, you wanted to steal, you wanted to rob the frontier towns, the border towns, this would be the best time to do it, don't you think? Every able-bodied man is in Jerusalem, all the way in Jerusalem. So what's the solution to that? So there's something very amazing. We read in chapter 34, verse 24 of Exodus. You leave everything unprotected. Your lands, your fields, your animals, your livestock, all your assets, they're all unprotected. All the men, all the soldiers are abandoning the frontier. What does the verse say? Lo yachmod ish etzartzecha. When you ascend to the temple, to Jerusalem, on the festivals, no man will covet your land. There's a divine promise here that for the duration of the festivities and the pilgrimage, the Almighty will withhold and withdraw the desire, the coveting of your land from the hearts of others. Again, this is a promise that only God can make because only God has the ability to affect the desires of other people. But it's an amazing thing. We're leaving everything unprotected and what's going to be? What's going to be when the thieves and the enemies want to invade, we're doomed. There's no one protecting our homes, our fields, our assets, our towns, our cities. Everything is undefended. God says, don't worry about it. I got you back. I'll defend it for you. Now, the Talmud tells us that this is evidence to the idea that mitzvah doers are protected. If you do a mitzvah, the mighty will add protection and you won't lose out from doing that mitzvah, which is a you know general rule, a general principle that someone does a mitzvah, if you're fulfilling the will of the Almighty, there's no way that you could possibly lose anything in the in the grand scheme of things. You may think that you lost, but you won't lose. That's a promise from God. But the Midrash also brings us some documented stories of what happened when the men left their homes undefended and what they discovered when they came back. It tells us there was once a man who was rushing, was rushing to Jerusalem. And he forgot to lock up his house. And he went to Jerusalem. And he got back. There was a snake that had installed itself as a lock on his door. They might have sent a snake to protect his house. Story number one in the Midrash. A second story in the Midrash, a guy forgot to take his chickens and put them in the coop. So what happens? The wolf will come or the big cat will come and they're going to eat your chickens. And he gets back and the chickens are totally fine. And there are panthers and leopards and tigers ripped to shreds on the floor. What happens? He doesn't know, but his chickens were protected. And there's a third story of someone who was so busy gathering his grain, and then he's like, oh, I got to rush to Jerusalem. He forgot to take his grain and bring it inside the barn, hide it, protect it. He gets back home, and he found that there were lions encircling and protecting his grain. And finally, a fourth story. This is also a wild story. Reminds me a little bit of uh, Kevin's tactics in Home Alone. 
There were two brothers in the city of Ashkelon, and they had bad neighbors. Ashkelon was, I guess, a mixed town. And the neighbors said, we're going to rob this Jewish family when they go to the temple, when they go to Jerusalem for the pilgrimages. And the brothers left their homes and their asses undef- and their assets undefended. And two angels came and they took on the appearance of the two brothers. And they lived in the house. And the neighbor's like, why aren't they leaving? They're still there. I can't believe it. It's supposed to be time to leave. And the brothers get back, got back and they're like, wait, wait, where were you? And the story was pieced together that angels came and impersonated the brothers, thus protecting the assets of the righteous Jews ascending to Jerusalem. Now, this was an experience. If you think about this, imagine from all corners of the globe, or at least of the regions surrounding Israel and Jerusalem, everyone is streaming towards Jerusalem. Throngs and throngs of Jews are coming from every direction. The Talmud tells us that there weren't signposts that would take down the signposts. That way everyone was just working together. Like everyone was talking to each other. How do we get there? Where do we go? There was like a, an experience of unity in the ascent to Jerusalem. And they would sing and they would dance as they ascended. And it was everyone, even little kids. The Talmud says, if your kid is old enough to go on his daddy's shoulders, he's responsible to go to Jerusalem. That's one opinion. So how old is that kid? You know, 10 months, 12 months, that the kid could be on the the father's shoulders, maybe a year. The second opinion is a little bit more lenient. Well, if if the child can hold daddy's hand, so maybe that's, I don't know, too, and walk to Jerusalem, they are already obligated. This is an experience that children were reared on this triannual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was bursting, but there was always room for more Jews. In Pertriavos, we learned that there were 10 miracles happened in the temple. One of the miracles is that there was never a shortage of sleeping space in Jerusalem. And then on Sukkot, you had the Simchas Beis HaShoeva, those five nights of partying. Listen to what this was like. The Talmud tells us, Mi Shalora Simchas Beis HaShoeva if you did not see this experience, you never saw true joy. What was this experience like? So the temple was all illuminated and the light would just permeate all of Jerusalem and there was dancing and there was music the entire night. So once it's nightfall, all the way to the next morning. And there was such an eruption of joy and song and it wasn't, you know, the the party goers that were celebrating. It was the most righteous people. It was the Hasidim Vanshe Maisa. It was the pious ones and men of distinction. They were the ones who were celebrating. They're the ones who were at the epicenter. And Talmud tells us that the great Rabban Shimon Ben Gamliel, who was the Nasi, again the, the most important rabbi in the whole world, he would juggle. What would he juggle? Eight torches of fire. Can you imagine? You just juggle them. What an experience to see the greatest rabbi in the world juggling these torches the whole night. And then it tells us that Rejuda the prince, also the prince of the Jewish people, he would juggle eight 
not eight torches, but eight knives. Can you imagine what a circus this was? Greatest rabbi juggling eight knives and none of them dropping? What an experience. And the Levites were there. And there were all kinds of musical instruments. And they were dancing. And they were praying. And they were talking about their spiritual experiences the whole night. Citing psalms. What an amazing experience. And the Talmud says, well, what about sleep? When would they sleep? So listen to this. This is my favorite part. Talmud tells us, Rabbi Shub and Hananiah, he was one of the sages who, whose life spans both the Temple era and the period after the Temple era. He was one of the students of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai. So he says, when we were in the Simchas Beis HaShoev in Jerusalem, we didn't sleep for five days. Five days we just celebrated. How so? In the morning, well, we were all in the temple and we would witness the first Tamid sacrifice in the temple. And right afterwards, we would go pray. And afterwards, we would go to the Musaf offering, which is the second offering. And after that, we would pray the Musaf prayer. And what would you do after you finish all the prayer? Would you go study? And they would run to the base measures, to the academy to study. And they would study until it was lunchtime. And when it was lunchtime, they would eat lunch. And from then, they would go pray mincha. And from then, they would go back to the temple to witness the Tamid afternoon, the final sacrifice of the temple in that day. And once it's nightfall, they would go to the Simchas Beis HaShoeva the whole night, celebrate and dance and sing and music and juggling the whole night until the next morning and it started again. So Talmud says, wait a minute, but, but when you sleep, there's a principle of Talmud that it's not humanly possible, at least not for average people, to go three days without sleeping. You have to sleep at least every three days. So what would you do if you, for five days you're up? How can, how's that possible? So Talmud says is that they would when they were dancing the whole night, think about it, how many people are there? Thousands of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people all dancing in this amazing festival of joy and celebration, but the people were packed together. So they would, they would lean their heads on the shoulders of the guy next to them, and they would doze off a little bit as they were dancing. And that was the, that was the, that was the sleep that they got. They got a few winks over the nights, but they didn't really sleep in a bed, and it was just this insane, ecstatic festival for five days. Of course, really, the, the extended festival was much longer, but the Simple Space Sheva that was done on the intermediate days of, of Sukkot was just this incredible celebration that would just change people's lives forever and ever. I have a, uh, I have a controversial opinion alert. How tolerant are you of controversial opinions? You tolerant? You can handle it? Okay, if not, then just, you know, zone out for a little bit. Today, Jerusalem is a mixed city, meaning that there are, there are Jews living there, and there are all kinds of other people, Arabs, Christians, all kinds of other people that are there taking up very valuable real estate. So my controversial opinion is that when Messiah comes, we're going to need a lot of land for massive plazas for these kinds of celebrations. Think about it. How many Jews are there today? 
in the world, you know, more than 10 million for sure, 15 million. No one really knows for sure the number. But we're definitely talking about north of 10 million Jews. And today, we finally have the capacity, we find the, the ability for Jews from all over the world to arrive in Israel. So my theory is, this is the controversial opinion alert, that the Almighty is keeping all those Arabs and all that real estate in place so Jews don't live there because it's much harder to evict the Jews once the temple's rebuilt. And therefore, we're, we're having, you know, they're like the placeholders of this real estate. So that way, when the temple is rebuilt, we could clear it out, move them someplace else, clear it out to make massive, massive, massive plazas that could fit millions of people, do some eminent domain, and they're there as placeholders to preserve the place. I said it was a controversial opinion. That's my opinion. I know it's controversial. But you said you can handle it. So I hope it's uh, not too offensive to your sensibilities. But to me, that makes a lot of sense. If a temple is going to be rebuilt, as we believe it is, and again, all the prophecies are pointing in that direction, well, we're going to have to do this again. We're going to have to have these triannual pilgrimage celebrations. We're going to need a lot more space. And we have the space, perhaps, to do it. Now, there's another really interesting Talmud. Again, I want to round out this subject a little bit. The Talmud tells us that Jerusalem, the most beautiful city in the world, actually doesn't have certain amenities. There are fruits, for example, that don't grow in Jerusalem. Why, if Jerusalem is the most the holiest city and the most important city, why are there certain qualities that are found elsewhere in the land not found in Jerusalem? So Talmud tells us it's because of the pilgrimage. How so? What would be if there were the special gnosars, it's called, the special gnosar fruits, the best, choicest fruits in the world were actually in Jerusalem. So someone would make a whole trip, travel for, I don't know, five days on a camel or a donkey, Make this whole trip to Jerusalem. You get to Jerusalem, you're all sweaty, you're all tired, and it's really hard to find a place to stay because really all the good hotels are booked solid. So you, you pitch a tent someplace and, you know, the living conditions aren't that great. But then you travel and you say, you know what? Let me buy some Gnosar fruits. And you, you eat the Gnosar fruits and you're like, you know what? The whole trip was worth it. That's the concern. We don't want people coming to Jerusalem for all the side benefits, for the restaurants, or the fruits, or the springs that are found in Tiberias. There are special hot springs found in Tiberias. Why are they not in Jerusalem? Because someone will say, you know what? It was worth it to get this experience in the sauna in Jerusalem. No. Jerusalem, you want, we wanted people to come for the experience itself, not for the tangential ancillary benefits that would have been in place had those amenities been in Jerusalem. There's another aspect of the pilgrimages that I want to mention. We talked about this in a Parsha podcast last year. The Parsha podcast archivists, of course, know which episode it was on. In the Holy of Holies, in Jerusalem, in the temple, there was, of course, the Ark. In the Ark were both sets of, t- of tablets, the tablets that Moshe shattered at the foot of the mountain the shards of that tablets, that set of tablets. 
And the second set of tablets that Moshe got subsequently, they're both inside there, inside the ark, but the ark is covered. There's a cover. On top of the cover, there are the cherubs. Those cherubs were magical, we're told in the Talmud. They would swivel. Talmud tells us in the book of Baba Basra, page 99a. When the Jewish people were behaving properly, they would be facing each other. When we were sinning, then they would face away from each other. The positioning of the cherubs was reflective of the Jewish people's relationship with the Almighty. When the relationship was good, the cherubs were almost like embracing each other. And when the things were bad, they would turn away from each other. Says the Talmud. When the Jewish people ascended to the festival on the pilgrimage, they would open up the curtains to the Holy of Holies and everyone would be able to look at the cherubs. They would show them the kruvim that were clinging to each other and they would say to them, look at your love that you have before the Almighty. It's like the love of a young couple who are freshly in love with each other. That would add to the experience. Could you imagine? You know, your whole life, you tried to foster a relationship with the Almighty. You get to Jerusalem. It's a difficult trip. But you get to witness this. Three times a year, the Jewish people would measure their relationship with the Almighty by peering in, by looking into the Holy of Holies, and looking at the exact positioning of those cherubs, those indicators of the relationship that we have with the Almighty. I pointed out on the aforementioned Parsha podcast that we don't obsess over this. Not every day do you open up to examine exactly how things change. But periodically, three times a year, you look and you examine, you do a stress test to examine your relationship with the Almighty. What an experience. Can you imagine how joyous this would be to be able to partake in this? I have a line I always tell my boys. When you open up the news one day and the headlines everywhere are Messiah has arrived, the temple has been rebuilt. What is the first thing that you do? So I train my boys from a young age of what to do in that exact situation. The first thing you do is you run to Expedia or Priceline, or Kayak.com. And you buy tickets to the temple, to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv for the next festival because by the time everyone realizes what you need to do, the prices will skyrocket. And therefore, right away, you got to book tickets, make sure that you are on that flight and you arrive in time for the festival. And now that I've shared the secret with you, the prices are likely to go up a little bit faster. But that's okay. Maybe we'll be on the same flight together. It should be fun. But what an experience. Three times a year, all of us gathering together, making this amazing pilgrimage of celebration and joy. And that experience changing our lives for the better. Of course, we hope to experience this in our days. Messiah comes. This mitzvah right away is restored. Today, we can still do the mitzvah of celebration with the meat and the new clothing and the jewelry and the delicacies on the festivals. But of course, we hope for the day to be able to experience this ourselves. Millions of Jews streaming from all over the globe 
to Jerusalem and celebrating and being changed forever in the temple on the festivals. I thank you for listening to me. My address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions and your comments.